so hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for making it here. I'm very excited um, to ask you the questions. Um, sure. so I guess let, let's start with um, fun stuff. What was your last adventure? My last adventure was last weekend and I went camping down on the Rio Grande in New Mexico. That sounds amazing. <laughs> What's the like brightest memory from that? Uh, brightest memories I'm not going to talk about on a recording. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so my dad is actually working in agribusiness right now, and this is what you studied in college, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, what what was college for you? A party. I, 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 okay. I, I, my my degree in agricultural business is funny. So I went to school to study marketing, and I made a C in accounting. And they were not going to let me in the business school because I made a C in accounting. It's a weed out class. So they wanted, so I decided I needed to find another way to get a degree that I could at least get some of my marketing classes and business classes. So the school of agriculture had a partnership with the business school and a degree called agribusiness. And so that's what I did. So I went and I, I mean, I have a farm, I'm from a farm family, so I just worked, but, but yeah, so, mm -hmm. but really I just went to school to party. Um, that kind of guy. <laughs> So how do you think from, from college up to like where you are now, what helped you craft your path and like find, well, essentially find what you're doing now, like working for Salesforce yeah. for the past nine years, but also coming up with the context marketing theory. Yeah. Curiosity. That's it. Pure curiosity. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've been a curious individual my entire life. Um, my parents definitely hated that. I was the kid that asked why a dozen times for everything because I just generally want to know. Um, and it's that curiosity, which is constantly, you know, asking new questions and coming up with new questions, going down new places. And so it's the curiosity to ask questions. And then it's the boldness to know that what exists today doesn't necessarily have to be what tomorrow is. Um, so it's, you know, realizing that the future is very different. And, and you know, so it's just a combination of, of realizing that yeah, just being bold, just being curious and then being bold with those ideas. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, what impact Salesforce um, has had on you and why you decided to stay for so long? I, I think in the modern, like, workforce, staying at a company for nine years seems long, maybe not, like, <laughs> back in the day. Uh, so, yeah, I'm curious. I'm sure, like, so many companies would love yeah, to have you uh, work with them. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a really easy answer. Um, so your, your, your statistic is accurate. Um, you know, in my profession, the average tenure, I did the research with LinkedIn, the average, I mean, like I ran a project with LinkedIn where we looked at, you know, millions of bytes of data over, uh, I think it was like a 10 year time frame. The average tenure in, in my roles is like anywhere from 1.8 to 2.4 years at an organization. Uh, my scenario is extremely different. Um, because at the time Salesforce was the most innovative company in the world. So why leave when you're working for the most innovative company in the world? Um, and I now work with one of the world's leading futurists helping run the futures lab. And so it's, they're just opportunities that you can't get anywhere else. Um, and so for me, it's not necessarily, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, it's just, I'm in a very unique place. Like who doesn't want to work there? Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, and who doesn't want to run the futures lab? Who doesn't want to work with Peter Schwartz? So I just kind of, because of all of those things, like it's, that's why I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about the futures lab and how, um, how that like came about and what it's like up to? 
Yeah. So six years ago, Peter, uh, Mark Benioff, which is our CEO, um, goes to Peter Schwartz, who's a world-leading futurist. And he asks him to make Salesforce the place where people come to discover the future. Um, so that's originally what happens. And I joined the Futures Lab coming up about, I don't know, seven months ago, um, really much more on what we call an applied futures scenario. So what I do is I help large brands and organizations um, see the future and then start to prepare for it um, via active experiences. So we, we do simulations, we do labs, we do workshops, um, all based on, you know, what future signals and scenarios uh, are most likely to happen. And then what should we as, you know, what should we as, as brands and businesses do to respond in those environments? Um, and so that's just kind of a, in a nutshell what the Futures Lab is. Mm -hmm. So I have read the, like a couple of reports from you on your website um, about like from the Futures Lab. Um, but what other types of materials or ways or w in which ways do you engage with brands to um, communicate to them like the future of marketing? Yeah, it's a good question. So what I try to do is not tell them things. Um, mm -hmm. So as we're talking about the future, we have to ask a lot of very big questions. Um, and so the the old idea of thought leadership was you're going to put a bunch of smart people in a room. They're going to write intelligent things down and they're going to tell people those intelligent things. That is how the world operated for a very long time. Now that we live in an infinite media era, we have to realize that information is free and ubiquitous and just telling people things is no longer a high enough value. Um, so what we really focus on are active experiences rather than passive experiences. And that's really what I do with brands is, is rather than just going in and telling them things, what we do is typically we say, well, I'll just do a quick share or I'll even record a video ahead of time and I'll send it over and say, here's the future signals you need to know about. Here are the big things and here's the impacts, right? From there, we then use a bunch of very specific techniques um, to then actually immerse ourselves in these future worlds and then start to play strategy and scenario games in those worlds. So rather than just being told what the future looks like, you're actually going in and you're living in that future and you're designing and experimenting in these worlds so that you know how to do, or see that you're better prepared for that future. And so you know what to do tomorrow. Um, so it's much more of an active rather than a passive experience. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, so I guess touching upon that and like, if you could unpack your understanding of the concept of futurism and maybe like the principles um, that you're operating with. Um, also, if you touch upon your work with Peter Schwartz and tell us about like who he is and what impact he had had on Salesforce and then you personally in the futures lab. Sure. I'll just start with Peter. That's the easy one. So, so Peter's impact <clears throat> is extremely large. So Peter's impact to the world is extremely big. Um, so if you want to go historically, so he starts at a company called Shell and he's one of the, the leading futurists with a guy named Pierre Wack. And what they do is they help Shell become one of the largest uh, oil and gas companies in the world um, by using scenario planning and futurism, um, which uh, Peter really hones at, at Shell. Um, and the problem that you have to imagine is if you are Shell or you're any big company, let's just go with big companies making big bets. And you are going to make a $100 million investment. And let's just imagine that this is 1970, $100 million in 1970. And you're going to go make a $100 million investment into a country to buy an oil field. 
You want to know within 10 years if that country is going to be a socialist country and it's going to take back your investment. You want to know, you know, what's the scenario? Is this a good bet? Is this going to be viable? Can we get that money back? And there's lots of big questions that you want to answer. So that's what Peter really started doing. I think he's continued to do that for places all over the world. So let's put it this way. When Steven Spielberg wants to make a movie about the future, he calls Peter. So if you've ever seen the movie War Games, Peter consulted with Steven yeah. for that. <laughs> Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise, the reason that Tom Cruise is typing and touching all these things is because Peter helps um, Stephen imagine that. What Peter got wrong was that you're not touching things up here, you're touching things down here. Um, and so it's the human can't hold their arm out, but they can hold their arm down. So that's why a touchscreen on your phone makes more sense than a touchscreen in the air. Um, so, you know, some of those ideas. And then, you know, he's helped change countries. Um, so if you were familiar in the 90s with the Asian tiger, right, this was the rise of Singapore and Taiwan and these other countries as uh, technological superpowers at their time, they had massive economic booms. That was because Peter had worked with them in the 80s to talk about what the future looks like. So that's a little bit about who Peter is. Um, so he's one of the world's leading futurists. Um, and then I don't remember your other questions. I forgot. I went off on that one too long. Um, just the impact it has had on um, Salesforce and Futures Lab and you personally. Yeah, and so then the impact it's had on us is, is very large. So what we do with futurism is we essentially say futurism is a core skill. Well, let's just take two steps back. What is futurism? What is, what is futurist? What it's not is easier to explain than what it is. What it's not is it's not a crystal ball. What we do is we don't say this is what the future looks like. We look at signals of what's taking place in the world, and we look at signals from a variety of angles, whether that be um, environmental, governmental, societal, cultural, uh, technological, and then we see then how these things affect change and possibly can affect change. And then we look at what is the most likely scenarios to result out of these things. Once we then have those scenarios, we then can start to play games of, okay, if we are in this scenario, how do we respond? How do, how do we do these things? So it's really based on signal sensing, foresight, using those to then determine what are the most likely future scenarios out of that. Uh, and then with those scenarios, then we then use very specific techniques to immerse people inside of those worlds. Um, so it's a combination of a lot of things from foresight, signal sensing, scenario planning, um, you know, workshop, facilitation techniques, innovation games. Um, so it's really kind of what it is. Um, and then because of that, Peter's impact to us in the organization is really helping, uh, helping us innovate and think in new ways. Um, so we have internal programs that teach future tools and future skills. Um, this really changes the way that we engage with customers and clients. Um, so here's a really easy example. Let's say that you're a big company and you want to sell I don't know, let's say $50 million worth of software to a company. And you have a really hard time of talking to any executive if you're a salesperson. Why? Because executives don't want to talk to salespeople, period. They just don't want to be sold things. It's standard across the world. It's the same. But what they do want to talk about is what the future is. And they are happy to work with people that are helping them see that future and innovate for that future. So we use it as a marketing technique as well of being able to go in and have conversations about what the future looks like, and then actually giving these companies and brands time and helping them innovate what the future would be for them and what it looks like. Um, and through those, we build really deep relationships at very high executive levels. Um, that then allows us to then have access to these brands um, and then do the thing that we wanna do, which is um, you know, help them progress and survive in the future. Mm -hmm. 
And what timeline uh, do you guys work with? We work with lots of timelines. So futurism traditionally, there's, there's different types of futurism. So there's what we call capital F future, which is a 10 year horizon. Um, it's a pretty traditional horizon line. That you're always going to see, you know, future projections and, and documents with like, you know, a zero at the end. So, you know, 2020, 2030, 2050, right? Decades. Um, I, I tend to like to look at more what I call applied future. So three to five year horizon, um, because it's more applicable, it's easier to actually know what to do. Um, sometimes it's very, very hard as an organization to do anything with a 10 year horizon timeline. It's cool to know what the future looks like, but then you have so many things that you have to do today um, that really I, I find it much more applicable um, and easier to implement when you look at a shorter horizon line, because you can also see in combination of clear examples. If you're looking at a 10 year horizon line, you're often looking at theoretical. So these are things that could happen. When you're in a three to five, you usually have examples that match the scenario. So you can say, we think this is the scenario, we think this is what you should do. Here's a company that's doing that and here's how well it's working. Um, so you have the ability to then, uh, so I, I prefer shorter horizon times, so that's, you know, two to five, three to five. Um, so it just really depends on what your project is, what you're wanting to look at, but traditional is gonna be capital F, future 10 years, uh, what I call applied futures is, is three to five years. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So coming back to context marketing, uh, I'm curious about sort of the evolution of triggers that led you up to like write this book and form this theory. So just it's it's iterative, right? So um, you have to you know keep in context that my job for the past decade has been to produce thought leadership. Um, it's to been to work on the forefront of marketing ideas um, with new technologies and brands to like really craft and create what the, the future looks like. And so with that curiosity, I go really deep. Um, like I said, I'm very curious. And so I'm, I'm also, I don't call myself intellectual because I mean, I've sat down with lots of intellectual people and yes, I can have conversations with them, but I'm more quasi intellectual. Like I, I really love diving deep on topics, talking about topics um, and then moving on to another topic, right? I'm, I'm always moving on and learning and moving on and learning. And it's through that iterative process that I came across Marshall McLuhan and came across this notion of media theory. And when I really started to understand media theory, it was just a giant light bulb that went off in my head. And it, media theory is the concept that media environments dictate a massive amount of human behavior. Um, they are, I mean, to, to quote Marsh McLuhan, you know, media is even where the human gets the notion of romantic love. Without the ability for us to read media, there is no notion of romantic love. It's not an, an, an innate notion in your brain. You have to be taught that through some type of media. Um, so it, it's these notions of how these things change. And then when I started to look at these things and ask really big questions, the pieces just kind of started to fall together and things just started to make sense. Um, and the last part about why it kind of really lit me up was, to me, this is a foundational thing, right? This is, this is not a small change. This is not, you know, a new piece of technology came out, or this is not a simple shift. And this is not like a hack. This is not like a strategy shift. What we're talking about and what my book was about was foundational changes into the future and how radically that is going to be different. And to be quite honest, that is my biggest beef with people reading my book is they're unable to see that. And what I found with readers is, and this is general, if you don't 
lay it out for them explicitly, clearly on a plate, they're not going to pick it up most of the time. Very few people will. And so oftentimes what people think about when they read my book is they're, they're looking for new tricks to up-level the things that are already doing. Or they read my book and they say, oh, I already know this, this, and this. So this is nothing new. Rather than understanding what we're talking about, and I even make this clear in the book is, yeah, these are the way that we're doing things now, but you also have to remember we're at the extremely early stages of this new environment. We don't even know really where this is going to go. We got a lot of ideas, but we're so early. This is such a foundational magnitude of a shift that it's, it's still hard for people to understand. They, they instantly grasp things that they know. That's just human nature. They, they say, oh, I know social media. I know what you're talking about. No, you don't. Um, you know, so it's, it's, you know, I don't know. I went off on a tangent there, but I'm just going to stop. Let you, let you ask oh, the question. I think you actually um, answered like my next question. I wanted to like, I'm always so curious about this phenomenon of like the new technology or a way of doing things come about and it seems like everything that we're doing before, is just going to like go away, but it actually like takes years or decades in some cases to like eradicate well, the old methods. Old methods for one, old methods never die. So think about this. No media format other than the, the A-track has really died. Tapes may have died. CDs may have died. Okay, so we go. Some die when, when they can be, when better things can be found. But you can still buy CDs. You can still buy tapes. People still make tapes. People still make records. I have lots of records. Um, so it's, it's really when we talk about the future, here's three fundamental things that are always going to be true. Things rarely die. Just more, just they fade away. They fade into obscurity. They just really don't die. Um, the second thing is that anytime something new comes into a marketplace, then the natural human evolution of use is you will use that new thing in the way that you use the old thing, right? So that until you've had that new thing long enough to find out new games to play. Um, so if you can think about, you know, when we look at this as media formats, um, really good example, right? When you know, the internet came about, we essentially just re remade newspapers online. And now look what we have. We have social communities online, something that didn't exist in the physical world, but it took a while to get there. Social media was not the first thing that we created when we had the internet. It took a while for us to have the internet before we created social communities. Um, so that's just the nature of evolution of, of uh, things. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that um, in your book, you talk about like, context marketing and like all this other concepts in a more general way, which requires people who are reading this in order to be able to like apply this to their work to like take a level of like imagination and like really engage reading. So it's the reason yeah. why context marketing is not like something that everyone is doing actively right now. Um, it's like due to people like just waiting for like easy answers. Well, no, it's, it's not just easy answers. There's lots to it. So it's a really good question. First off, there is the fear of change. There is the, I know better. I know best when I'm doing works. Um, so there's that. It's really hard to change. Um, a lot of times you're talking about very large shifts. So most of the time I work with very, very big brands, right? So I'm working with the biggest brands in the world. And when you're talking about having anything that's big change, I'm sure you've heard the, the analogy. It's very hard to change a battleship. Right? It's yeah. easy to steer a little tiny canoe in a circle. It's very hard to make a tight turn in a battleship. And so you're talking about significant change management when you're talking about foundationally different ideas. The next is, you know, 
we're still in transitional period of time. So, so there are lots of examples, but still there's value and the, the people are still doing stuff in old ways and still, even though it's inefficient and I disagree with it, it still produces some type of an outcome for them, or at least theoretically they think it does. Um, so, you know, you're finding that. And then the last is this is new. And so the only people that are going to be doing this are the most progressive brands, right? So, you know, you've got a small demographic of people that are testing these ideas, doing these things, um, the rest of the people will, will move and adopt these things as they either one have no choice. Um, so we usually call those the laggards. So if you're familiar with the technology adoption curve, you have yeah. your, um, yeah, so you know, you end up with your laggards. We're currently in like early adoption stage. Um, and so you can move forward. So it's just hard. Um, and it's different. Um, and the biggest problem is the way things were and the way things that I'm talking about are, are so radically different that it's, if you were to do all of these changes overnight, it would be impossible. So it's like you have to pick and pick your pieces and pick your battles and move forward over time. Mm -hmm. um, so now I want to jump to the streak of questions um, centered around like a path for a modern aspiring marketer. So let's say we have sure. like someone in college, someone like, like myself. Uh, mm -hmm. We know that they cannot learn like too much at the university because I took like marketing classes myself um, at my university yep. at Vanderbilt. And like the stuff that they were teaching was like literally from like 30 or 40 years, 10 years ago. Old. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even older, <laughs> uh, but like as a person who really wants to go into marketing and transform the field, be as like at the forefront of change, um, what paths would we need to take? Because um, like when I picked up your book, so I found it at Barnes and Noble at um, the Vanderbilt store. Um, I was like so surprised because in my classes, they told me about like, I don't know, attention, uh, attention being like attention grabbing being the center central piece of like you know uh, yeah like advertising but then like once mm -hmm. I read your book I was like oh it's in the reality of things and the future of things is like drastically different uh, so yep. I want to know yeah how would we as like you know young aspiring like marketers craft our path in a in a way that we don't give in to like what people say about like yeah with people who seem influential but like don't actually know what's going on are telling us yeah, so I think the easiest thing to do is, uh, um, in my generation, when I was in school, um, in the prior generations, you couldn't do marketing unless you were at a company, right? It would be very hard to create something, to get it up, to get it out. Either or two, you'd have to work for somebody in time you, know, you literally can start right now and start personal branding you can and create you can build a massive audience you can you can market you can work in alliances you can do everything that you would do as a brand but just do it for yourself and that's what i would say i would suggest first starting in learning things, I came across a thing called the 30 day challenge. So this is when, I mean, it was like the new thing. Like I remember at this point in time, if you could just do basic SEO, made a lot of money this way. And what SEO was a program called the 30 day challenge. And the 30 day challenge was 30, there was, there was this, these two guys, and they had this thing and it was, you know, to help drive, this is a marketing ploy for their consulting. But what they would do is over 30 days, there's a video each day that taught you 
a different aspect of SEO with the goal of at the end of 30 days, you will have made $10 on the internet. That's just the goal. At the end of 30 days, you will have made $10. You will have built a website. You'd have SEO'd it. You'd have sales. You don't have to build anything and you would have made $10. And just by doing that, what you learn is invaluable. And so to my answer back to you is anyone that's in marketing, stop going to these theoretical classes because it doesn't matter. What matters is what works, right? So just start doing it, make a brand, right? Whether that's a media brand, whether that's your affiliate selling affiliate stuff, whether you're a TikTok influencer, whether you want to just start marketing something um, and do not your college degree. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's kind of like what I've been trying to do and share with others. Um, so along those lines, like what are some future proof skills that are like really worth like drilling down on? This is a really good question. Are you ready? Okay, here you go. Number one, co-creation. So it's very different given a different environment. So the best thing that I can, the best line that you need to consider is when you get place, the, the demand for the thing is inherently built into the thing. Think about that, right? So in my book, right, goes out to the marketplace and says, hey, help us come up with new flavors. They didn't have to go back to those same people and say, hey, do you want this new, get your attention and tell you why you need this thing. They're the ones that came up with the idea in the first place. The demand was inherently built into the product before the product was finished. So co-creation, number one. Number two is internal. So when you think about marketing, and I'm, I'm just going to assume you really haven't gotten into like working in a big organization or working in an organization or on a marketing team. If you have, cool. Um, Not yet. <laughs> all right. So the other aspect is the ways that we work, right? So there's the ways that we go to market. But we also have to think about the way. And one of the big things that we have to learn internally is this notion of facilitation. So I would say professionally, you need to learn and understand facilitation. And what does that mean? That means that you are making decisions internally in a new and more efficient way that's more equitable, that produces better outcomes, and that's faster. Um, so I would say learn facilitation techniques. Um, and there's just, you, you can Google it, you can take classes on it. Um, but this is how consultants operate. Um, and it's really, it, it's how modern teams make better decisions. So there's the internal and the external. So I'd say co-creation, facilitation. Um, the next is programming. So think about this. The number one language for interacting with humans, we use, we use French, English, German, Chinese, Spanish. We have our languages that we interact with humans. In a technical world, what's the language to interact with technology? It's code. So if you don't have that language, you're really out of place in that modern world where you don't know how to do those things. Now, of course, you could, you could throw the you know, low code movement back, but still you have to have a basic understanding of technology and code to then build these things. So kids that grow up playing Minecraft, kids that grow up with Roblox, they are so far away because they understand systems and systems design. And when you start looking at this future world, here's a basic statistic, the average, and we're talking enterprise, the average enterprise has 30 plus tools just within their marketing stack. 
I don't know if that number seems big to you. It's erratic across an organization are 900 different technologies. These are enterprise organizations. So knowing how these things fit together for data flow, for operations, for automation, you just have to understand technology, how it connects. So understanding coding and digital architecture. Um, and then past that, I'd say, is, is the notion of agile, is this notion of iterative work, right? So the old idea of how we built things, and this goes for everything that we built, was that we would not put out something until it was the best, the best that it could be. We learned as a world that agile is a much more efficient methodology. Um, assembly line only works for things that have to be built in a factory at the final stage. Initial production should not be that way. Most things should not be built that way. They should be iterative. So agile uh, and iterative methodologies um, are extremely critical. So I would say that's another one. Um, and then past that, you know, you still need, you still need to know how to write copy. You still need to know how mm -hmm. to build audiences. You still need to know. I don't, I don't know if you can teach good. I don't know if you can teach someone to have a good eye. Um, mm -hmm. but you need to teach people to know relationally if they have that skill or not and where to go get it. Um, so, I mean, there's still the standard copywriting. You're still going to write copy. You're still going to have to like design things. You're still going to have to have all those fun traditional toolings and, and skills. Um, but those are really just like the icing on the cake. Yeah, that was an amazing breakdown. Uh, I'll have to like come back to it and unpack that more. Um, but the next question is, so like the annual advertising spending like worldwide is in hundreds of billions of dollars. So brilliant. I assume that trillions, yeah, um, that like the future of marketing is probably going to lie in like optimization of either cost or effectiveness of advertising. Um, mm -hmm. So if that is true, like what do you think the coming like optimizations are going to be in the nearest future? Well, I mean, they're already here. Um, so the optimization... Well, there's, there's two sides. When you talk about advertising, you talk about this future world, there's what, do, what does the brand want? And then there's the technology. There's, there's technically, I'm going to help. There's between you brand and consumer, you make an ad and then I see an ad. Between those two points, there's that in you making the ad, like once it's been deployed, it runs through, it runs through a DSP, a DMP, an SS, um, server-side optimization. There, there's so many different things. So everything's already optimized. AI is, is what's optimizing all these things now. In the future, it's all programmatic. You're just going to decide what you want optimization for. Do you want optimization for eyeballs? Do you want optimization for context? And really, it's all based on what you're buying your ad for. So go and deploy an ad in Facebook, right? If you, if you don't have a Facebook ad account, turn it on. Just go look at what you can do. It's insane. Um, and you can buy ads based on, do you want just eyeballs? Do you want conversions? Do you want app downloads? Do you want, what is your desired outcome? And so once you've told the software what your desired outcome is, that's then what the ad is going to be optimized for in the world. Um, so that's how the AI is going to then optimize it. So it's not that there's a one, one size fits all optimization. It, it's going to be, it's going to be optimized based on what the brand wants for optimization. Um, and in the largest context, the number one underlying everything is called engagement, 
right? If an ad is not engaged with, and you can define engagement through a view, a click, a CTA, a conversion, if it's not engaged with, it doesn't matter for the brand. Um, and so you're always going to see an optimization for engagement uh, in the future. And then you also then throw in the mix of a post cookie world, which is what happens when you can't target individuals. Um, so then how does that affect these things? And I think that will slightly affect this, but people will still be optimizing for the things that they want, right? You know, if you're measured on conversions, you're going to optimize for conversions. If you're measured on uh, click-through rates, you're going to be optimizing for click-through rates. So it just depends. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in one of your blog posts or in, in the book as well, I think you talked about three factors of um, like the future of marketing, um, mm -hmm. them being like AI, new marketing team, and a new work approach. So I'm curious about like what company exemplifies um, those three principles well and also like how would a younger startup go about building this like strong parts of their marketing so the I'll start with the easy one the easy one is the young startups <clears throat> all of these technologies and tools are there they're available and if you're a young startup you don't have bad habits that you have to fix All you aggressive, you already are thinking in these ways. If you're not progressive, you're going to have to get executive approval to think in these ways and operate in these ways. But the easy answer is all these tools are there and they can just be picked up and bought off the shelf in a SaaS methodology, which means like for a few thousand dollars a month, you can be outfitted with the, the best and the greatest. So that's the easy one. Um, and that includes AI. The other thing is you won't be buying AI. So today you may be buying AI. Really good example, right? If you buy Salesforce, we can up-level your product with Einstein and you pay an additional XYZ for AI. In three to five years, there is nobody that is going to be selling an upsell for AI. Why? Because if I give you AI, you're going to have a better outcome. You're going to produce a better outcome through my tool. And if my goal is to keep you paying me money the longest, all I have to do is simply produce the best outcomes. And if I'm not giving you the AI to produce the best outcomes, my competitor will to take you away. And so what you're going to see is that AI is going to be baked into everything just because a human with AI makes a better decision than human by themselves. And so all technology is going to be empowered by AI. Um, so you won't really be buying AI. Everything is just going to be baked into everything because it's just going to be better. Um, and what was the last of the three? It's um, about. A new work approach. A new work approach. Yeah, that was the notion of you know, essentially removing this hierarchy, thinking about things in iterative processes. Um, marketing is no longer a silo department. Really, that's kind of what that means. Um, mm -hmm. So if you think about it this way, all right, so let's get, this is a fun story. Have you ever watched the, the, the documentary Art and Copy? No. All right, you should watch that. You'll, if, okay. you'll, you'll enjoy it. And in there, they, they interview DDB. Well, not DDB. DDB is a company. They interviewed some of the founders of DDB. So if you're not familiar with DDB, now it's DDBO. It was yeah, one yeah, of the, yeah. yeah, you know who they are. All right. So what made them so great is what they did is the following. This is how things used to work. You would have a copywriter write a line of copy. They then would walk it down the hall and we'd give it to the art department and the art department would make art to go along with the copy. Then they would pass it down back to the account executive who would then take it to the client and get it all approved. What DDB said was, why is the copy and the art department not working together? Why is one being passed to the other? Why is it an assembly line, not a process? 
a collaborative process. And instead, they flipped, so they made it a collaborative process, and they produced much better results by combining those two things together. That's what I mean by a new future of work. Marketing cannot just be a department where things are handed off and told about it. It has to be infused into everything. Um, when that means infused, that means just all aspects are now accounting for marketing. Here's a really, it, it, it's hard to, to understand that this is not how things happen. I mean, it's very hard for us to sit here and be like, duh, it's a duh statement, right? This does not seem like rocket science. It seems like everybody should be doing this. Here's a quote I got, and, and I can't tell you who this company is, but just go with this. They're an extremely progressive, modern, digital retailer. App first. They are extremely progressive. And I was talking to the, the, ex, the ex-CMO, and they said, you know, when we built our loyalty program, it was very hard for me to infuse loyalty anywhere past just the traditional marketing box. And here's the scenario. She says, what we wanted was loyalty to be infused across the entire customer journey. So when you bought something, we wanted everything to be a, a premium experience because you were loyalty member because service and support and delivery did not fit under marketing's departmental control and service and support had a different set of metrics. They said no to all of that. They, they didn't let it happen as in they vetoed it because it was not going to help them reach their whatever metric they were currently being measured on. And you're kind of like banging your head against the wall. You're like, but wait a second. Like we, you, theoretically, we all know you should be doing this. It makes total sense but you're not going to do it. And, and that's the reality of the way the world is today. Um, you know, so it, it, even though it seems like a very simple, easy thing, it's very hard in these organizations. I think that's the hardest and most frustrating thing, probably for someone in your position, when you're, you're being, you're learning all these really progressive things, you're learning all these new things. The reality is when you back, when you go into the real world, change is very difficult to make. Um, and it's just, sometimes it takes a long time. So yeah. I don't know if that helps out. Oh, it really does. I'm happy that you like keep bringing it up because I would say this is like my main question when like I learned something and I'm like, oh, like, why is everyone not doing this already? And there's no like clean answer, but I think um, I'm starting to like understand more because like the nature of change is like meant to be like hard. Like uh, last year, yeah. I, I got Tim Ferriss's book um, for our work week. And then I, I was like, I was reading it and I was like, oh my God, it's like a totally new world because I was just stepping into entrepreneurship and like learning all of these ideas and then I learned that the book was published in 2007 and I was like oh I'm like so behind I felt like I just like lost in life because I'm like okay everyone must be like on this grind having like a personal VA like doing all of their like no so Uh, and (laughs) to your point that was 2007 there's been massive pushback on that now do you know the pushback on Tim Ferriss and this notion of hustle culture no and grind so what he talks about and and this is the I'm not necessarily like loving this term, but it's, it's a pretty powerful term. It's called hustle porn. <laughs> so there are a bunch of bros and, and girls that are into that, that culture. It's all about how much money can I make? How fast? And there's a massive pushback against that. Not sustainable. It's not purpose-driven. It's, it's really not a, a healthy mentality to hustle, 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 grind, 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 grind. Um, it's very American um, and it's not necessarily a very positive thing. That is to be taken with a grain of salt in the same belief that I'm extremely in hard work. 
Um, and what you're going to find if you haven't already is at this point in your career, how do you go faster than other people? You can do two things. You can either be naturally smarter than them, or you can simply work more hours. It's a simple fact mm -hmm. of life when you're young. And if you are willing to work more hours, you will succeed and you will go farther and faster than people. The question is, what will you exchange for that? Um, so just keep that in mind of like, you know, hustle culture, the grind, it's, it's a buzzword and it's, it's a thing. It's not necessarily seen as a positive thing by everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting because, so I come from Uzbekistan and I think in like in our part of the world, this idea of like just grind for like grind's sake or even money's sake, it's very like not familiar to us. Like people like earn money to like live their life. Whereas like in America, it's like the opposite, like people like work, just like to work and, you know, like reach status. Um, but I think like stepping into entrepreneurship, um, I sort of like will bridge both sides, you know, in the, in a more balanced and conscious and responsible, you know, style of working and living. Yeah. I'd um, say balanced and fair. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so I want to read a part of your definition of context marketing. So it says context marketing is a new method of marketing where brands break through by crafting experiences to meet a person in that specific moment of need and help them accomplish the task at hand. Um, so in order to be able to meet the person in the moment of need, you need to have um, a lot of data on like their behavior. For example, I can feel lonely right now. And if you show me an ad from like a dating site, let's say it would be very contextually relevant and probably like effective. So I'm curious how you see that playing out with regards to global data collection, privacy, and also post-cookie future that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, so two things. One is the example you gave is the lowest level of contextual marketing, right? The, the, the notion that context is about how do I have the most data to serve you the most relevant ad to get you to do what I want you to do in the moment is not what I'm really talking about. Mm -hmm. So what we're really talking about is people have outcomes that they're trying to achieve. You just need to figure out where those are and how can you align with them and help them do those things. Like really good examples, communities. Um, you know, our trailblazer community, I write about in the book a lot. Um, you know, Spotify, I write about in the book a lot. Um, so it's, it's, it's more powerful marketing methods than the notion of how do I get my message to resonate with more people? It's really, how do I understand people better and help them accomplish their goals that's the way that we break through in this modern world rather than how do I, well, the example you gave, and yes, I give this example and I talk about it in the book because I have to, but the future of contextual marketing is not how do we use personal data. I'd say it's more like this notion I'm working on now, which is called fast advertising, which isn't something I wrote about in the book. It's It's much new if a brand is able to go from a cultural moment in time to an ad in market in 48 hours and under 48 hours. What that does is it changes the conversation from, let me come up with a trick or a scheme to get you to do what I want to let me just simply be, be a part of the conversation. That's it. And by being a part of the conversation in real time, you don't have to break through via tricks and hacks because you're a part of the conversation and people are wanting the idea of context. Um, so it's not about, you know, how much personal data. When you get into personalization, and by the way, that is a format of personalization. When you get into hyper-personalization, you do need to have data. However, what I really want people to understand about 
personalization and data is it's you need to create value for people out of it using it to serve a better ad to somebody is not valuable to that end user they're not going to give you that data anymore i mean just think about this really really critically as a futurist what we look at are, are signals and we look at scenarios and then we have these things called like signal posts such as let's say we have three scenarios these are all very possible and then each of those have signal posts with what that means is if this signal if you see this signal that's a clear indication that this scenario is most likely now so here's a possible scenario consumers own their data this is a very possible scenario in fact if you read i, I talk a lot about doc in my book and yeah. doc's been working on doc at harvard's been working on this for a long time it's called vrm and so this is a very possible scenario the signal for this the signal post is a universal global digital wallet or one app away if you didn't have desantis if we didn't have trump we would be on that path because what would have happened is the united states would have enacted a digital vaccine card that would have been housed in a digital wallet once everyone has a digital wallet they now have the they, they've now taken the step, which is the barrier. They no longer have the barrier. And they now have a digital way of protecting assets. And then what they wouldn't do next is have the ability to then protect their personal data. And rather than being able to harvest and collect that data and keep that data, i.e. a brand doing that, when I show up on your website, I have preset filters that say, this brand is allowed this data in this moment. I hold it. They can API and use it, but they can't API and keep it. Um, so that's, you know, when we're talking about the future of, of data, that's where the future of data lies is what happens when consumers have control and brands no longer own it. They can, um, and if you are using that data for targeting of ads that people don't want, you're not going to get access to that. I think that's to, to me, that's more important is let's think about new ways and new methods of how we connect and how we add value rather than just how do I then put a better, an ad in front of somebody, because when you start talking about marketing and how do you grow companies in the future, how we grow companies and how, what we know about growing companies, that's what marketing is doing, right? It's how do we, what we know works best is holistic methods. What we know works best, a bunch of people in the top of the funnel. What we know works best is by increasing customer lifetime value. Right. This is not new. We've, we've had the statistic that retaining a customer is seven times more efficient financially than it is than it is to go acquire a new customer. So if we want to talk about like financial performance, growth, revenue, all of that, those old ideas of marketing have to be given up because they they don't necessarily help you accomplish that. It's just what we've done. It's what people have been taught. It's what people know. And um, that's why it's why they do it. It's not because it's more efficient or effective. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for like this nuance because I mean, I wanted to ask this like sort of like obvious question uh, because I'm sure like a lot of people have it um, and definitely like a person like as you who's like really deep in the weeds of this um, has more like nuanced understanding of, yeah, well, what is the future of data and um, how do brands like collect it in a responsible way? Um, so in your presentations, I saw like a lot of examples from Chinese companies. Um, also some of the trends that you talk about, um, like in with regards to context marketing are already implemented in china like such as social mm -hmm. commerce and live streaming um so why is china like ahead of um 
so oh. first off, your questions yeah. are really good. This is a really good interview. Um, so okay. you should just know that first off, you're asking better questions than most people with podcasts. In fact, you're asking better questions than just about any podcast I've been on. Um, so here we go. Why is China better? I don't have enough information to give you a super deep answer. But here's how we should think about things. Look at the flow of trends. Trends have traditionally, right? Think about blues, think about rock and roll, think about um, Apple, think about, you know, health forward car, like just think about stuff. Over the past hundred years, things have traditionally flowed from the West to the East, right? What we're seeing now with TikTok is a really good signal. Things are flowing East to West. And what has happened is China has become a superpower. And a lot of people aren't really aware of this. In fact, the largest consumer demographic growth is in China. They're going to grow. I think it's like, I did, I wrote about this the other day. I don't remember the stats, but they will be like six X faster, six X <laughs> bigger than the U S consumer market in like four or five years. It's like some silly number. They're just, it's radical, but they have, um, and that's it. And they have a sizable marketplace and they're innovating. They're doing a lot of stuff. Now, they're very different than us. Don't forget, right? They're a communist society. We're not a communist society. So like things that work over there necessarily don't translate directly, right? Like, um, like facial recognition and social scoring. Are you familiar with social scoring? No. So what happens in China right now is you, you are visually tracked. You're and you are just tracked everywhere you go. And they use AI to, to know exactly who you are based on facial recognition. You then, all of the things that you do are then tied to that profile and you are scored. You are given a social, not like a Facebook social, you're given like a Chinese score. It's like a score that you have. Based on what your score is, base, it, it, bases, it opens up or closes doors to social services to you. So, so that's how you navigate life. Let's lose today. It's stuff like that. That's what's happening over there right now. So that will never happen in the United States because of the way that a democracy versus a, a dictator or a communist regime works. We need to be really, really clear that things are now moving east to west rather than west to east or whichever direction that is for you. They're, they're moving from countries that used to be, well, we used to set the trends. Now China is setting the trends. Like I said, TikTok. Um, and look mm -hmm. at all the other things that are coming over from them. Like, will social commerce be as big in the United States as it is? Maybe. Um, again, that's a very big cultural, cultural difference in how the two societies operate. Um, I mean, you've got examples of, you know, in China selling like $40 million a year of product. You don't have any influencers doing that directly. Um, you've got like the Kardashians, you've got Oprah, you've got these people, and they put their stamp of approval on something it sells very different than what what's happening over there but it's a really good question and i don't know why they're better <laughs> okay um so i went to like look at the projection of social media so like vaguely it went from facebook to instagram um to tiktok and like with every step the platform got more experiential like more ai and more engaging and also mm -hmm. like each like platform consequently like sort of stripped down a lot of features and well down what's like the most important 
So Instagram said like, let's just only have pictures. Like people love that. TikTok then said video is like 10x more engaging than an image. So let's only use video and make it full screen. Um, so in this mm -hmm. progression, what do you think is the next like experiential optimization? Uh, there's, what do I think? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I really thought a ton about this in terms of like actually what's next after video. And the reason, the reason why I'm asking is because like, there's like always this phenomenon of where you're like in the present, it seems like, okay, so everything like has been done already. Like looking at TikTok, you're like, oh my God, it's like optimized so well. It's like so AI and so like engaging, just like draws mm -hmm. you in. I'm like, I can't really, without like thinking about it too much, imagine what could be better. But like the point of like, I guess, entrepreneurship is that like, I mean, every next person comes and they, you know, like create something that is better. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious about this. Yeah. I mean, you from a theoretical place, what comes after just simple video is immersive, right? We're already, if you talk about AR, Instagram is AR, augmented reality. If you take a picture and you apply a filter, that's augmented reality. If you take a video and your face changes to a puppy, it's augmented reality. So we're already in this augmented reality space, which is past video and all platforms allow for that. So, I mean, I think when you look at that, the next place you really are into is this notion of the metaverse. It's, you know, the true metaverse, there won't be a metaverse. There'll be many meta microverses um, that you'll be interacting with. You know, Minecraft is a metaverse. Um, Fortnite is a metaverse. Um, you know, so there'll be lots of these that we're operating within. So I, I think that the next evolution is out of think think about this not in terms of technology think about this in terms of interactivity right so social are feeds which you're just scrolling through a feed what's mm -hmm. for what's fortnite fortnite is an immersive world where you're engaging with others they have different um but you're going to start to see much more of a shift towards these communal immersive experiences that's not to say that traditional media like consumption and, and projection that's all media is is I need to, I, I want to consume information. I want to put information out. That format is not going to go away. Um, but I think, you know, you're going to start to see a shift towards more immersive worlds, like, like we're seeing with Fortnite and like we're seeing with, you know, Roblox, like we're seeing with um, Hell Clubhouse is a step in that direction. You can build a world, you can invite people into it, even though it's audio only, it's, it's similar vein. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I just have last two questions. Um, so one of them is um, who are like the people to watch um for like the future of things um both like for marketing but also people as like peter schwartz just sort of like forecasting uh, what it like what what is going to be coming up for all of us I, I, that's too it's too hard of a question to answer because it, it's it's so specific right um mm -hmm. there's lots of futurists uh institute for the future is a good one um you've got uh jeremy um, G-U-T-S-C-H-E. He does a lot of futures work. Um, mm -hmm. You just got a lot of really like different places to go and, and find it. It, it. Getting viewpoints on the future, you just Google future of blank and you'll find something, somebody talking about. So, I mean, I really don't, I, I, I don't have much for you on that one. I, I don't have like my favorite <laughs> people I follow. I don't have my favorite people I listen to. Um, those are all like private and personal connections. So I have like my personal mentors that I talk to and I put their weight above all others. And the rest is like 
I just Google for a topic and see who's the, the most authentic and, and well thought out. And I get information from them for that moment, but I don't know. I'm, I've got so it's almost like now. there's no like, like grand secret, you know, to like the tools and the resources they're using. I mean, maybe you have like no. those specific like mentors uh, that like maybe not everyone has access to, but like more or less just you applying your like imaginative curious mind to like, to interpret yeah. the reality around you which yeah. like I mean arguably I, anyone can do yeah anyone can do I mean the, the internet just fuck the internet just if you have a question <laughs> ask the internet they're better than asking me okay okay and just last question um I'm curious like if you changed your mind about like any of your theories or opinions you had like during COVID because that was like a big hit for businesses and everyone hmm I mean, I definitely would have written the book differently. Um, there's stuff I'm working on now that I wish I would have been able to include in the book, like fast advertising um, is fascinating. Um, in terms of theories, I really wish I would have made it much clearer. The, the back third of the book is all like tactical, right? It has to be like, here's what you do. Here's how you do it. I wish I would have been more explicitly clear on this is the way Way things are done tomorrow but these are clear examples of what this means and how it operates um so yeah i mean like if you ever write a book you'll understand all you <laughs> want to do is get that baby out into the world and even from the moment that you start writing you and you get your pitch approved you already have other ideas you want to do but you're already pigeonholed into this one thing um so i mean like i don't know my advice to anyone wanting to write a book is just make a podcast instead. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like heard that you're working on the next book. So will that next book like include the things or are you? Where'd you hear that from? No. Where'd um, you hear that I from? Think, I think you like said something on your website or in one oh, of your books. Maybe I'm not working. I don't <laughs> want to write another book for a very long time. I'm working <laughs> like I've got so many fun projects I'm working on the notion of I'm really tired. So the, my world has really changed by COVID. Um, not my theories per se. Well, I guess this is a theory. Before COVID, my job was to fly around the world and talk on stages and write books. <laughs> and I got really tired of that. Number one is you're on the road all the time. Number two is telling people things isn't all that valuable, right? Because we live in this world where information is free and ubiquitous and easily accessible. I, they could have just simply Googled a speech of mine and watched it. They didn't have to show up to listen to it, right? So it's kind of this, it's an archaic thing that we've done. And what happened during COVID is I completely changed to saying, I'm no longer just going to give speeches. What we're going to do is we're going to create immersive experiences and work people through these problems. So that's the big thing that, that has changed for me is how I do my job and how I help um, people innovate. I, I don't help people innovate by simply just being the source of, of knowledge. Now what we're doing is really driving into very futuristic scenarios and games that help people get to the outcomes and help people learn how to innovate and help people to really get the outcomes that they need. Cause just someone on stage isn't going to help you get there. Yeah. So in a way, like giving speeches and like, like writing a book is like a archaic way of delivering information or like, de like delivering your idea of how things should be to like the world. So you like only people, you as only an reason entity, people write books is for personal brand. 
why <laughs> I just I was just on a call with seven other authors. Business. It's not an altruistic thing. Mine was altruism. Uh-huh. I had to make it support. I, I had to I had to make it have our brand in it enough that I was allowed to write it. You know, on the company dime, but I didn't do it to grow my business. I just, it was a theory. I'm a theorist. I like to think about stuff and I just wanted to think about stuff with other people. And what I realized is people don't want to think they just want you to tell them the answers. And (laughs) yeah. So it's like the, the podcast that you have the electronic propaganda society, like sort of like a way to make your like theories more agile in a way. Like you just said, better have a podcast. It was a, it was a strategic, it was a strategic thing. Um, it was there to test out my theories and ideas to see kind of what people's reaction was going to be to them. Uh, is, is everyone going to say, fuck you, this is wrong. Um, you're an idiot. Um, you know, I wanted to know what feedback I was going to get on my ideas and theories um, and then try to build an audience um, from it. So it was an audience build building methodology, a way of just testing ideas in the right place. And then the third thing was, I just wanted to prove to all the B2B marketers that the shit you create is boring and it doesn't have to be. And there is much better ways to do this. And then all of these awards behind me are from that podcast. Mm-hmm. It's the number one most awarded <laughs> B2B podcast that year because it was different. And like, that's my whole point to people is stop this notion of being, just stop being boring, man. Like, I mean, <laughs> So here's a really funny thing for you. So I don't know what you want to do. I don't know. Normally I would ask questions. We just don't have enough time for me to ask all these questions. But here's what I wanted when I was your age. I wanted to be a brand marketer. I wanted to, to work for big, sexy brands, right? Like Nike or Coca-Cola. I'm from Atlanta, so Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that, to me, that was what was cool. What you realize is I went to school to party. I didn't go to school to do internships in the summer times. I was a backpacking guide. I, I would hike for weeks at a time through the Appalachian mountains, like guiding. That's what I love. And when I got out there, what I realized was I was competing with people that were at the top of their class because these are the sexiest jobs. Just like the sexiest people have the most people after them, the sexiest jobs have the most people after them. And so what happens to most people is they end up in a B2B environment, which traditionally is very, very boring. When I was in school, my dad always said, you know, not all doctors made A's. Well, not all marketers make A's and the ones that don't make A's traditionally go to B2B marketing. They don't go, or they work for really tiny, small agencies. They're not doing the cool stuff. Um, so, but that be. Now, anybody at any brand can do like radically awesome stuff. You've got podcasts. You, I mean, I proved you could do a B2B podcast. You could, you know, have dick jokes. You could have like, you know, cursing. You could have radical imagery. You could have storylines that really push the bounds. Um, and, it, and it worked phenomenal, right? So I'm just tired of people being boring um, and being safe. And I think consumers are too, right? Like mm-hmm. we're all the same. Like I don't want boring stuff. You don't want boring stuff. Unless you're boring. And if you're a boring person, you probably want boring stuff, but I don't want to be selling to boring <laughs> people because that means my life's going to suck. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good like finishing point. Thank you so much, Matthew. I mean, this was, um, I'm still like surprised you agreed to talk to me, but this was amazing. <laughs> you want, uh, let me tell you this. This is good for you to know. I took this interview for two reasons. One is how you asked. 
Two, is that you asked? And then three, I'm glad I did it because you're asking very good questions. I'll tell you the biggest secret for my success, and that is questions. So I would highly advise you read a book by Warren Berger, The Big Book of Questions. And when the, the thing that's been the most powerful to me, and hopefully this will be powerful to you, is since I was your age, I've always sought out mentors. So Peter's my last mentor, Peter Schwartz. And before that, I've had all kinds of mentors from presidents of banks to all across the like spectrum. And how I got them, first off, is you can't open. The whole point is that if you're curious and you, you want to go have a person who you can ride on their shoulders. The trick is your mentor. Here's what I did. Number one is shoot for the top of the top of the top. Find the world's best. Don't shoot from the middle. Here's why. The middle people are trying to be the best. They don't have enough time to give you. The people at the top are the best. They have plenty of time to give you. Seems counterproductive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I promise you. Number two is Google the shit out of them. Google did a really job. You knew what I wrote. You asked me questions about what I wrote. You didn't ask me questions you could have Googled. Um, and so then ask them questions you can Google. And number three is have a plan. So go to them, find them, use your creative marketing brilliance, make some type of cool thing. Here's what I did. One of my favorite stories is I wanted this guy to be a mentor, my first startup. And he was like the startup. Up King Overch. He was ex-military. So what I did is I designed this package and it was a manila envelope. I made up a top secret sticker, put it on the outside, made, took a manila folder, made it look like a military dossier, you know, had the whole program written up in like military font and looked very like official. <laughs> and then I, and I send it to him by a um, signature verified mail, which means like he has to sign to receive the package. And I've used this. So this is what happens. His secretary walks this thing into his office, says, I don't know what this is, but it says top secret. Scott replies, <laughs> I don't know what it is, is either, but it says top secret. I'm going to need you to leave the room so I can open it. He opens it, loves it, calls me. He's my mentor. The third thing, that's the creative, get, get a creative foot in the door. Use your marketing skills. You're a marketer. You want to be creative, do it. The third thing is have a plan in place. The secret of why I'm able to get these mentors is because when I go to them, I say, here's the plan. I want one hour from you a month. I want it for six months. And here is every month's curriculum already written out so you can see exactly what I want to learn, specifically tailored to what I want to learn from that individual. So it shows forethought. It shows um, you know, planning and preparation. And they now know that it's, the weight is not on their shoulders. All they do is show up for an hour. You have questions. You already know what you want to ask and answer. And people say yes every time. Yeah, so making it so, as easy as possible for them. Yeah, and kind of like doing and all the there's um work. yeah, Mark Schaefer just wrote that whole tactic. I just did an interview for Mark for his latest book called Cumulative Advantage, um, and that whole thing's in there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, do it. I'll check that out. Okay, thank no you again. Um, Cheers. I hope Have to a good stay one. in touch with you. Yeah, see you, Matthew. Yes, let me know how I can help. All right. Have a good one. Bye. You too.